CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. We think we know what is real and what is not, yet strangely we can't even agree about what reality is made of. Is it everyday things? Is it it particles and energy? Is it language and thought? Is reality essentially incomprehensible because it's beyond us? Or do we just need more time and patience to uncover the truth? We'll we'll sort that out in less than an hour, okay? So, Hilary Lawson is a non-realist philosopher whose theory closure marks a post-Deridian return to metaphysics. Hilary Lawson is director of the IAI and How the Light Gets In. Uh, this is Tara Shears. She's a particle physicist and the first female physics professor at Liverpool. And according to Wired magazine, she's rapidly becoming the go-to scientist to explain all things CERN. So you'll have a chance to ask questions at the end and this may be your best chance to get some answers. And Alison Milbank is professor of theology at the University of Nottingham. Alison is also a priest at the Church of England and holds the position uh, in Southwell Ministry. Is that right? Southwell. Southwell. Sorry. (laughs) Right, so what we'll do is we'll start off giving each of our speakers about four minutes to address a particular question. Um, That question is, is reality essentially incomprehensible? Is the ultimate nature of reality beyond us? And then we'll work through some specific questions in the rest of the time. So shall we start at that end? So for me, reality is both rich and also mysterious. Uh, um, On the one hand, we have material things which have their own kind of self-substantive kind of reality, uh, and yet do not explain higher, more abstract things. And then we have intellectual realities which are also real, and, as I say, cannot be explained by matter, and yet seem to be more than themselves, and so possibly open to us a realm that is beyond us, beyond our penetration. I would include in the real thoughts, language, imagination, mistakes, differences. Um, So that's the kind of things that I think are real. But the important thing for me is that we don't get to it by a subject-object dualism. And I'd like to explain it in terms of a story from um, an unfinished novel by the German philosopher Novalis uh, called Heinrich von Ofterdingen. There's a scene when the protagonist has a dream. And in his dream, he comes upon a flower. And the flower begins to move. So the flower begins to move from being an object 
of the real to being a subject. And in fact, it begins to grow a face. And as he looks on that face, he begins to desire it. He begins to feel that great German sensucht or longing. And the object leads him beyond it. And so it seems to be very important that we don't see the real as the object of ourselves as visitors from outer space. The story also shows that to be real is to manifest. In fact, that's what the real is. It is what manifests itself to us. And again, I would seek to avoid a very extreme phenomena, noumena distinction, the idea of phenomena as the things that we experience with our senses, which are totally under our control, and the noumenal, which is somehow completely inaccessible in that mode of apperception. Um, and it seems to me that we have to trust the real. And that in a sense, because things manifest themselves to us, that is the real. The real is that manifestation. So it's not just something hidden behind, it's a kind of density of that manifestation. In fact, I believe that actually the real is oriented towards being known by us. Well, is reality beyond us? So is reality beyond us? I, I was thinking about this, and it is a hard question, which means I've brought notes so I don't start w wondering. And for us to successfully tackle this, I think we need to break this down a little bit. It, the question's too broad. I mean, first of all, we have to define what we mean by reality. And I'm a scientist, so I thought that reality is that which is in common to most people. And so I was taking reality to be the physical universe, you know, the structure of the physical universe. That's my interpretation of reality. And then there's a question, how can we best understand this? And then, given that we found a good understanding, only then, I think, can we find out whether our approach has limits to our understanding or not, whether we're going to get there and understand the whole thing or whether there are fundamental limitations. And I think it's only once we've got to that, that place that we can make that decision. You have to find the right question to ask, and then you work out how to answer it. Now, having said that, I'm a particle physicist, and my day job is spent looking at things too small to see. I study fundamental particles and data. These things are as small compared to atoms as atoms are compared to us. And these things obey the laws of quantum mechanics, which means they behave like particles sometimes, like waves sometimes. In reality, you know, really like neither, because they're so non-intuitive, we don't have a good picture for them. But that doesn't mean they're incomprehensible. We detect particles by the traces of energy they deposit in our detectors. That's what we read out and interpret as their position. We have equations describing their behavior that we match up with our data, and that seems to work. And that's our tractable way of making progress in understanding the nature of reality. Now, I don't know what the ultimate um, nature of reality is. I don't know if it's fundamental particles and fundamental forces when you get down to the innermost structure of the universe. I don't know if it's strings. I don't know if it's something we haven't even thought of. We're just on a journey and in a process to find that out. Now, we've mentioned language and thought as being realities as well. And I, I find that difficult because uh, there are, there's amb ambiguity there. And it's because we work in mathematical equations, which have more precision in that sense, and they're less ambiguous. So 
I'm going to stick to that <laughs> for, for mine, um, just because it gives me a mechanism to obtain a testable way to match my definition of reality with my understanding of reality. So, I don't know if this, this approach is going to be completely comprehensible. Let me say that now. Um, I don't know if we get to an explanation whether it will be ultimately testable everywhere. There might be regions of the universe that are just unreachable, like the Big Bang, like inside black holes, like the end of the universe. But I think we can do a pretty good job at describing everything accessible to us that we can obtain data for. That's my position. Excellent, excellent. So, finally, is reality essentially incomprehensible because it's beyond us, Hillary? I mean, we all have the impression that we've got a pretty reasonable grasp of reality, don't we? You know, it's, here we are, people next to us, we're, we're in hay. Um, so we have a sense that we know what's uh, going on. Uh, but uh, I'm going to, and particularly in a world where just at the click of the button, we, we've all got Wikipedia, you know, we can, even if we don't know what's going on, there's somebody who apparently does. Um, but I don't think... Uh, we do have a grip of what is taking place. And we always, I think, are under the illusion that we've almost got there. Uh, it's, it's a little more than a hundred years ago that Lord Kelvin, who was a great uh, British scientist of the uh, 19th century and was responsible for the second law of thermodynamics, he was also responsible for the absolute temperature scale uh, we still use today. And he was addressing a, a group of physicists. And he said uh, that uh, physics uh, had discovered everything that was uh, significant and that all that was left to discover was more and more uh, refined measurement. This was before Einstein had rewritten Newton, before Heisenberg had uh, made the world uh, uh, uncertain before the atom had been split, uh, before we had discovered galaxies that were beyond our own, uh, before we had protons and neutrons and now leptons and quarks and so forth. And we smile at um, Lord Kelvin's hubris, but we've not learnt the lesson. Our theories today will at some point in the future be seen as just as mistaken and just as wrong as his ideas were then. And our beliefs will come to be seen as prejudice by future generations. So what's going on there? Why, why is that? Well, I think it's because our account of the world, our senses and our thought, don't give us access to how the world is. They are tools to make us in, help us intervene in the world, to enable us to do things. And there's no right way of doing things. We can refine our tools, we can have a good way of doing it, but we never arrive. Just in the same way as you know, we can have a very effective lawnmower, but no one thinks we're going to get a true one. There are just better lawnmowers for doing that particular thing. And I think our theories function in that sort of way. And the way I describe that is in some sort of detail. I think our theories close the openness of the world. We can't say somehow how the world ultimately is because we have to make sense of it 
as a result of what we do with it. And what we do with it is to create the things that enable us to intervene and so forth. And you might think, well, you know, how does this, what, what do you mean you create the things? Do you mean we just are making it all up? No, well, I don't think we're making it all up in the sense that I think there's a whole load of stuff out there. And I think there's also constraint on what metaphors, as it were, what closures we can use that will work and we can refine those metaphors. But I don't think we ever, in a sense, get closer to arriving. We just generate more powerful metaphors. And imagine a single page of 100 dots, just 100 dots. And imagine you are creating some patterns, looking for patterns in those dots. You can find more patterns. If you, if you think of each dot, you could draw a, sort of a line in your mind's eye to 10 around it. There are more patterns on a single page of 100 dots than there are particles in the known universe. And not by a small amount, by a vast amount more. So the number of ways you can hold those dots is effectively uh, unlimited. And I think that what we do with our thought and the way that our senses work is we take the equivalent of the dots, which is the first layer of closure, the first interaction of our senses with the world. So when the neuron fires in our eye, it turns the openness of the world into just two things. Either the neuron fires or it doesn't fire. The neuron firing is not a description of what's out there. It's not found out there. It's a response to what's out there, and it only holds it in two ways. It either fires or it doesn't. And we take all of those individual sort of things, and the things are a result of that process of closure, and we have further layers of holding them. And think, if you think if it just in a page of 100 dots, how many patterns are there? Think how many patterns of, of ways we can hold the visual array of the hundreds of millions of neurons that there are that are firing in our eye. And so I think that what we are able to do is hold those hold the world in these different ways and some of them are very powerful and we can refine them and make them better and some of them are less far powerful and we we reject them and so I don't think that uh, with time and patience we will gradually uncover how the world is you're not going to find a guru on some Indian beach or a scientist in some depths of uh, their mathematical uh, engagement who is going to give you the answer. There's not going to be a theory of everything. There's not going to be a guru who's going to provide you the answer of how it is. But I do think that we can create new ways of holding the world which are valuable for us and will enable us to intervene in ways that we can't do at the moment. And the, because the world is, uh, is open and we can refashion it, we can refashion it to do all sorts of stuff that we are not able to do at the moment. And that's because of the richness and remarkable potential of the world. Well, there it is. So we have, on the one hand here, someone who says reality is the physical universe. I imagine there's going to be disagreement in a moment. Okay, so let's move on and talk about what, what reality really is. What do, we, what do we mean when we use that word? What are we talking about? Um, should, we, should we start again at that end? 
I just did that the first time round. You said well, you, when you say that. Well, I just I just want to get even more clear on it then. So yeah, you say okay. So you said, for example, reality manifests itself to us. Yes. What is manifesting itself? Manifesting is when you have an encounter with the world, and in fact, that encounter has elements of what you would call closure, in the sense that the world is dense; it resists us, and yet. I would say that that very resistance to our understanding is itself a form of disclosure.、Um, and so, for example,、um, when you look at a house, in order for you to recognise a house, you don't have to see around the back of it.、Um, in fact, the fact that you can't see it all both establishes it. As a house, and also means that you have a sense in which you have a real encounter with something that you recognise as a house, and yet that house has some kind of resistance and beyondness. So I suppose I want to say that there is both openness and there is density, but there is some mediation in that encounter. So just help me. So what, what is In, in a sentence or two, what do we mean by reality? What's the word mean? Everything in 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 the world,、um, but for me, of course, I mean, I don't want to get theological, but、um, obviously, for me, there is an ultimate reality. You said, you said trust the real. Yes, I do. You were refer- referring to that ultimate. I do,、reality. but、I'm、obviously, when I say trusting the real, that is going into a kind of mystery. There is、um, both a positive and、uh, a mystical negative moment in any act of apprehension. But you have to imagine, as you when you do your experiments, you have to imagine a world in order to do anything. And I suppose I'm trying to privilege that act of imagination. As well as an act of reception, and I'm very, very anxious to see the real, not as something that we do stuff to, but as something which we are within, in the form of a kind of web of relationships. I suppose that's what I would say reality was. So, so you'd include、um, interpretation as、yes. as well as ultimate nature, and they they would、yes. both represent reality.、Yes. Okay, and no, that's interesting because.、Um, I, I can see where we have overlap, and what I've defined to be a difference. Because to me,、um, there is interpretation to find the underlying nature, but the underlying nature itself is what I've termed to be reality. I haven't included the the interpretation stage as well. And Hillary, you're talking about our ultimate inability <laughs> to interpret anything, but you're also talking about that as well, aren't you?、You're, you talked about the our. Inability to know the world, but what you're really talking about is our inability to appreciate and translate it, or or am I misunderstanding? Let me just pick up on the on the previous comment first, on the comment. I th- I think、uh, your your phrase make manifest.、Uh, there's a bit that I can go along with with that, as you hinted. So I think that、uh, with our thought and our language. We hold the world as something, and in that process of holding the world as something, we have something that wasn't there before, 
I don't think uh, you know, empiricists try to build up, as it were, from the, the, the data to, to, to find the world. I don't think you can do that. I think that, you, that our closures create something new. So, in, if, for example, in, the, in the, um, those images that you can see a couple of ways, you know, a duck or a rabbit, uh, when, when you see it as the rabbit, when, before you've seen it, you think, well, what is it, rabbit? It's, oh, ra and and then, you, then you realize it. You make real the rabbit somehow. It, you actually have the perception of a rabbit. And I think in your example of a house, um, well, you could hold it as lots of other things. You could hold it as a building. You could hold it as a habitation. You could hold it as a collection of bricks. You could hold it as uh, some atoms. You could hold it as a human artifact. And each of those different ways of holding this bit of the world would enable you to intervene differently. And you might say, well, it's a particular type of human artifact. Um, it, it's a particular sort of habitation. So you would, you, you would be able to refine your closure and get something that appears to be more accurate. But I don't think it is more accurate. It's just like a more refined way of operating with that, with that closure. So, and each of those, we are, to some extent, in your for making manifest, in some, we are realizing them. So it, when you see it afresh, when somebody says of the tree, this is a house, you say, what do you mean it's a house? And they say, well, it's a house for all of the um, uh, insects that live in, 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 the, in the tree. It's a house. And you go, oh, I see. I, I, I see how to hold this as a house. And in that moment where you think, oh, right, I, 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 you have realized it as house. You can now look at the tree, not see it as a tree, think, it's a house. And then we can argue about what sort of house it is. Where it's a, is, is it is a good house? Is it, is it a, you know, so forth. We can ask what, and, and that, that process, I think, is the process of realizing the material that, closure generates. But you don't leave any of those other earlier apperceptions behind, do you? You said we see it as a house and not a tree. What yeah. I would want to say is that you're not just closing off a different bit, you're, you're, you're actually going deeper and you're taking everything with you. Yes, I, I think that we don't, if we are able to uh, um, realise a closure, we in a sense have always got it. Uh, and we add other things to it. Uh, we have other ways, but I, I don't think somehow they all add up to reality. So as if somehow if we piled all of these closures on top of you, we, we get, because I think that uh, I'd be more inclined to refer to what's out there as openness. We, we can't say how it is because any way that we say it is to use a closure. Uh, but uh, we could hold it in all sorts of ways, but it's a different sort of stuff. So the relationship between our closures and what's out there, I sometimes use the metaphor of, it's a bit like the relationship between flags and the wind. You know, the flags respond to the wind. You can get a sense of what the wind is like by the responses of the flags. But if you had never experienced the wind, it wouldn't matter how long you looked at the flags, you'd never know what the wind was. It's a totally different sort of stuff. And so I think openness is a totally different sort of stuff than closure. And as human organisms, we, I think we operate in closures. 
So you're saying that reality is inaccessible? I'm saying that, yes, that uh, what I would call openness is inaccessible in the sense that we are able to say how it is. In, in another sense, I think we're immediately in it, because I think that every closure that we have somehow contains uh, openness, because it, it has the underlying equivalent of those dots that are on, on the page, those, those initial layers of sensory response to the world, those are still there. <laughs> so we've got, uh, we don't just have the house, we have all of the patches and colours that made up it, we have all of the different bits of it, so we could always interrogate our individual closure and find things, and indeed I think the closures always break down, because the closure is never up to openness, there's always bits in which it's somehow not a house. <laughs> um, but maybe that's because you've picked the wrong way to describe it. Sorry? Maybe that's just because you've picked the wrong way to describe it. If, if, if you, of course, if you adopt a, a realist picture of the world, then the explanation of why one description is better than another is because one is true and one isn't. So I don't accept that. So I think the, uh, I think that um, you can always defend a closure uh, and, and account for it. So in, in subatomic physics, uh, if you propose, uh, you know, let's hold this as a particle, and somebody says, actually, it's not a particle, it's just an artifactual response of the system. Um, well, you can always maintain your theory that it's a particle. You can say, well, I know it looks like that, but there's something else acting. There's something else going on which enables me to hold that. So you can always modify, as it were, your theory. You can always modify the closure in order to be able to maintain it. So I don't think there's a truth or reality that you can somehow get to, to somehow found your theory. I've got to the bottom of it. What about evidence? Well, indeed, evident, uh, so another way of saying what I've said is evidence is always context-dependent, and you could always rewrite that context according to a different paradigm or a different story. And, and of course, within the context of a particular set of closures already, so once you adopt a framework of you know, protons and neutrons and so forth, then there will be certain sorts of consequences where it looks as if it's really hard to come to anything other than this conclusion. Well, in fact, I think you can always modify the theory in order to maintain the conclusion, but after a while it just gets too difficult. But what about predictive power of such theories that are then borne out by experimental proof? Yeah, well, I think Feyerabend did, you know, in his examination of Aristotelian, uh, the Aristotelian system versus the Copernican system, I mean, I think he, he demonstrated that the Aristotelian system, which we now regard as being you know, self-evidently wrong, i.e. You know, we, um, uh, we're at the centre of the universe and things go round us, as opposed to the Copernican system where um, we go round the sun, he demonstrated that actually using the Aristotelian system, the church was able to predict the positions of the planets absolutely perfectly accurately, um, that they were able to do this for at least 200 years after Copernicus arrived. Uh, I think that we could imagine a situation in which the Aristotelian system was continued to be refined and would even account for the movements of Mercury and so forth. And that would be, at some point, we would think, well, the problem with the Aristotelian system is it just got very cumbersome. It's just very complicated. We've got to have lots of you know, ad hoc explanations and things like that. But you can always maintain your theory. So you're putting criteria on reality now? Sorry? You're putting criteria on reality, that it shouldn't be complicated? No, I'm, I'm, that's what we do do. 
I'm saying that it, I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm just saying that what we do is we 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 adopt closures which seem to work. And one of the things about them working is they're not too cumbersome. That they work reasonably easily, and and we want them to be um, and and we could get any of them to work, sort of a thing. You know, I, I could say um, you know, there's nobody in this room. Well, it's going to be quite hard for me to maintain this. I'm going to have to have you know, some theory about why it appears that there are people in this room, why uh, we have the impression that that's the case. Uh, but I don't think that we can you know, stop somebody trying to develop uh, a metaphor along those lines and, and, and holding on to it, because I don't think you can dig down to get to the stuff, which means, no, I've been proved right. you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Can I, can I push us into our second? Sorry. Second. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I thought there were houses and atoms. I don't know what's going on now. I'm beginning to be grateful, actually, that I study physics and so, not philosophy. It's not simple. <laughs> <laughs> I, so aren't we getting closer at explaining what reality is? Isn't that what's going on in your lab? I, I would argue yes. For my definition of reality, which is our knowledge of the... Well, it, which is the physical universe, we are obtaining more and more knowledge about it. So we are running experiments which give us more data that we can use to confront our theories and just test them in a wider and wider regime in the universe. And we find either that the theories hold up, so we're confident we understand more of the universe. And what we hope to find, of course, is we hope to get to that place where our existing theory fails to hold and we can find a deeper, more extensive replacement. That's, that's what we're trying to do. But we're always making progress. There's theoretical progress to provide alternatives all the time. And there's experimental progress, building experiments, taking data to confront it. It's a scientific method. It's ongoing. You know, you don't stop science at a particular point because it's an investigation. It's not a status in that sense. And for me, there's no question that we're, we're always improving our knowledge of reality in that sense. And because it's a testable and reproducible definition of reality that you can show is increasing in size, that, that's my basis for arguing this. So maybe, I mean, uh, I'm, not, I'm not putting forward this account of openness and closure because I want to uh, say that science isn't very effective or it's not really doing something. In fact, I, I'm keen to make science uh, more effective. So uh, mm, uh, I, I think that uh, I, I want us to refine our current theories and try and make them better. But I think that our attachment to the idea that some of them might be real is actually a, a, a limitation to us improving those uh, theories because we, we, start to, we, we stop sort of imagining new metaphors which might be better. And, uh, so, and, and indeed, the theory that I, I'm putting forward, the theory of openness and closure, is itself an attempt 
to try and describe the world. And I, at the same time, I'm not saying you know, this is a definitive account, because that would itself be con you know, uh, self-referentially paradoxical. But I'm saying this might be a really powerful way of us understanding how we intervene and how we do things. So, so I think, for example, that the, the framework of closure that I've just described might enable us to create a, an intelligent machine uh, better than some of the more realist strategies that artificial intelligence has until relatively recently adopted. Th theories don't describe reality? Sorry? You think theories don't describe reality? Yes, they're, they're, they're ways to hold reality. Okay. Yeah. I'll let that go. <laughs> I, I thought I was objecting too much already. <laughs> no, no, it's different. Well, um, Alison, do you think, I think you think this, because I spoke to you this morning. <laughs> you think there might be a boundary beyond which science can't get any closer to the way the world is and, and that there are other things that might swing into action at that point? It's the nature of the kinds of questions, isn't it? It's not that science can't go deeper and deeper and deeper and go on and on and on and on forever, because I do think it can and has that kind of capacity, but it asks particular questions of the real. And I'm, as you know, particularly interested, though I think science is too, in, in, in questions of beauty and our, our perception of truth. That beauty, truth, beauty attracts us to truth and leads us into the quest for truth. Um, and I see this, um, well, I believe in the union of the transcendental, so, you know, I think beauty, truth, and goodness, and they're all one. In the end, that they all will unite. And in that sense, science, scientific accounts and artistic accounts will all kind of converge until finally, we shall, as St. Paul said, know as we are known, and the whole thing will turn around, and we will actually know ourselves for the first time. Um, so in a sense, I do think that science has the potential, a kind of infinite potential, but it's not the only potential. You know, and you think there's, a, there's a, some things science answers and some things science doesn't? Yes, I, I think there are some limitations to our knowledge. Um, there's definitely some experimental limitations to what we can access. And if you have a limitation either in your, your theory, which helps you interpret data, or in the evidence you've got to check a theory, then that's what limits the boundary of your scientific knowledge. So there's definitely a boundary between what we can talk about and have confidence that's there, and then beyond it, we, we can only have ideas. Is there a kind of mystical element then in science that these boundaries are actually helpful and attractive and interesting and actually help you develop truth and learn about reality in other ways? Oh, no, 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 we, we want to push them <laughs> further back. We want, to, we want to understand more. Um, having a boundary no, there is, is challenging um, because yes, it, sure. it, it hides a mystery. And by a mystery, I, I mean something in the physical universe you don't understand that you would really, really like to understand. Oh, yes, sorry, I wasn't trying to suggest that you shouldn't go beyond them, but I was just wondering, I'm trying to, again, turn closure into disclosure for you too, and um, suggest that in the scientific method, there is this sense that when you can't solve something, this itself is a kind of disclosive thing which helps you 
further in your learning about reality. Right, I see. Yeah. If you can prove to yourself that you can't solve it, I think there's, there's always an issue about defining that point and knowing definitively that you can't do it rather than it's just not accessible at the moment and it might not be in the future. That's very hard. And I don't know that we've often got to that stage. So for that reason, it's always much easier for us to talk about the regime that we've been able to test and that we know. So, so I, I suppose I, I'm just w wanting, as I did with the example of Lord Kelvin at the beginning, to caution here about the idea that we, we get deeper or we get closer to something that we might arrive at. Um, I think we like this idea because it is indeed the, the idea of an ultimate closure and we are in a sense closure machines and we like this idea. But um, I, I do think it's an illusion. And I do think that some of the ways in which science unpacks the world, and I add in parenthesis, you know, I'm not saying this as a critic of science. I'm saying it as, as, as in a way, wanting to be a scientist. <laughs> it's that, that um, I think some of the ways that science unpacks is it's really unpacking the character of the way that closure works rather than the character of the world. So the fact that when we see the world, when we imagine the world is a thing, when there aren't things out there, means that you can keep on unwrapping the, the, the Chinese doll, as it were, and find new bits in it. Um, the, and characteristics about the beginning and end of the universe and so forth, I think are functions of the way that closure and the concepts operate rather than uh, that we are somehow uh, uh, discovering something elemental about the beginning of the universe. So I think you have to be careful uh, in the way that, we way that we approach our metaphors uh, not to somehow be taken in by the formal character of the way that our metaphors work to think that we've discovered how reality oh. is. No, I, I completely agree, and that, that for me is where evidence comes in. And that is also where the hard job comes in, of ensuring that you haven't biased yourself, that you're not looking for what you expect to see according to your theory and shaping your interpretation of the universe accordingly. Yeah. And for me, evidence is what does the job at preventing you doing that. You might have your most favorite theory of what the universe is made of, but there's nothing that's going to make anyone believe it if you can't get any data to support it. But the question is whether you can ever really have an example of evidence. Isn't the evidence always found within a theoretical framework? That um, what is evidence for one person is not evidence for the counter theory. No, 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 I don't think so. Not when it comes to science. I mean, the definition of evidence and data is pretty well accepted by all scientists. Well, we've had plenty of scientists here who would have different accounts of... Well, there are different types of experiments, maybe. But the concept of having a prediction that you then devise an experiment to provide the evidence to make a measurement that you then confront the data is a pretty common theme. But let me get, let's have a practical example. You know, and I think this was a criticism of Newton, for example, when he first started his um, 
So Newton tells us, you know, the apple falls off the tree because of the force of gravity. And there's an obvious problem, which is, well, what is this force, Isaac? You know, where is it? Um, we, you know, we, can't, we can never quite get to the bottom of what the force is. I mean, it remains the case. Um, uh, but let's, let's take, let, let's, let's take your, your closure at face value, as it were. And, uh, yeah, the, the apple falls the tree because of gravity. Uh, how about all of the other apples that are still on the tree? You know, most of them aren't on the ground. So Newton says, oh, well, I've got a very good answer to that. Because uh, there's an equal and opposite force, uh, which uh, is keeping all of those there. And then, you, then they said, well, this sounds rather circular. A any example I give you of something that's not doing what your theory is predicting, you just say, there's another force acting. But all of these forces are, in a sense, invisible. I, I, you know, we, we, can't get, we, we can't find any mechanical uh, evidence of them. And you're just able to maintain your theory in that way. You just bolt on another force, and, and that's how you've explained it. Oh, so I think that if, for example, we came across some, some seeming evidence that um, uh, you know, the, the essential framework of Newtonian physics didn't work, we would, we would just bolt on a bit, which enabled it to work. And indeed, I think the process of bolting on is how we have generated the framework of science that we've now got. So I think the reason that the Newtonian system is successful and is so powerful is precisely because it's tautological, because it enables us to refine the metaphor and add bits. And if they don't work, well, we just add another bit. And that enables us to sustain the theory and keep it going. Uh, and by keeping it going and refining it, so we get better and better theories and we get better and better ways of intervening. But I don't think there's ever evidence. You know, if the evidence doesn't fit, you just have a little, little tack-on bit down here and that's how you make it fit. Okay, I can't let this one lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've done it. <laughs> uh, so that, that illustrates my point about designing an experiment to isolate the effect you're trying to study. So you've given two examples, an apple in free space, falling to the ground, yep. an apple held on a branch which does not fall to a ground. Yep. Now, if you're studying gravity, you need to take away all other effects. So what you should really be doing is getting an isolated vessel, <laughs> without air in it, preferably, um, having an array of apples or other objects, preferably, with different masses, different characteristics, holding them all in suspension, letting them all go at the same time, seeing how fast they drop, determining their acceleration and, and so forth. That's how you isolate all other effects. For example, the apple being joined to a branch. I mean, there are electromagnetic forces holding the molecules together there that if you were really trying to understand the experiment, you would have to take into account. So well, I think you were being rather unfair there. Now, your point about Newton's understanding of force is completely justified, because he had no idea how this thing worked. And he thought that it just happened magically. You know, the Earth went round the sun, the apples just <laughs> fell to the ground. It was spooky action at a distance. And it was a real cause for concern for almost all other physicists. Now we do have more of an understanding of forces, and we understand that there are contact interactions, so it doesn't just happen. It happens because there is something conveying the force between the things that are experiencing it. Our understanding has moved on. Well, although we're having some problem with gravitons, aren't we? I don't say our understanding is complete at all. Uh, you know, so, science is in so progress. So we still, after all of this time from the initial hypothesis, we still have no explanation of the mechanism 
of the force. And even if there oh, were, no, 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 e no, no. were gravitons, we'd have the problem of what accounts for what makes them operate as they do. Terra has an there's explanation. A sort of, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a, a regress in trying to explain force with particles. I don't believe so. So gravity, <laughs> the, the understanding of gravity has developed since Newton. We have Einstein and his general theory of relativity, which, which has e extended our description from Newton. And it hasn't bolted on bits to explain discrepancies. It's a different way of understanding it, a more fundamental way. Now, it does fail when you get down to small distances like particle physics. And when I say it fails, what I mean is that you can't stick general relativity into the type of quantum theory that you need to describe very small objects. At some stage, your predictions give you rubbish answers, because we don't know how to do it properly well, yet. But that doesn't mean that we haven't, that we've, we've thrown our entire understanding out of the window and gone backwards. We no. understand the vast majority of scales in the universe, it's just we haven't understood this one yet. So what, what I would that is, We've, we've elaborated this metaphor, this closure, and it enables us to do some things extremely well. Actually, it also has all sorts of uh, 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 implications elsewhere which don't make much sense. So, um, you know, uh, block time uh, or block space time is a pretty weird idea. Actually, I don't know uh, what that is. Can you oh, explain? The, the, the idea that... The, that um, uh, that space and time are somehow given uh, so that time is not a, I mean, we imagine time as a passing phenomenon, you know, there's this time and there's the next time and so forth. But obviously, you know, four-dimensional space-time is just... It's a coordinate. It's a coordinate. It's not a, it's, it has no arrow. So that doesn't fit with our daily experience. Uh, and, and I think it's a consequence of... Um, trying to deal, indeed, with the puzzle of how you get force, because force happen, you know, happens over time. So I think there are, so I think there are profound uh, things which don't add up about, about, about the Einsteinian but story. That but that doesn't mean to say that I want to abandon it. I want to say, let's use it. It's very useful in these sorts of areas. It works for this. Um, but uh, if, uh, it, it, for, for lots of everyday life, it's not a very good closure. Uh, and let's have a different one, and it will, that, will, that will work. Uh, but, but well it, it seems to me you're rejecting it just because you don't like it. No, I, I'm not rejecting it. I, I, want, to make it, I want to make it better. I, I, I'm not remotely rejecting it. I'm saying we can hold the world like that. We can hold the world in terms of the way that contemporary physics works. Um, we can do all sorts of things with it. We can build our, uh, you know, uh, our, our colliders and so forth. And we can no doubt, hopefully, uh, use this to do other stuff. And I'm all in favor of trying to do that. And I'd be all in favor of trying to make them better and more effective. But I want us to give up this sort of metaphysical idea that, that, that somehow, you know, uh, we're going to have thereby describe the ultimate character of the universe, or indeed that there's some privileged language, you know, the language of subatomic physics is the ultimate metaphor. I don't think it is. It's, it's one metaphor, and it's a very powerful metaphor in its own area. But, you know, the apple farmer who decides to pick his apples around the corner because, well, I've been doing this for a long time and they're just ripe at the moment. And actually, I think it's about time to do it now. That's a very good way to pick apples. It's not a very good way to pick apples to try and do it on the basis of the forces in the universe and, and how all of the particles are working. And so, in fact, not only is it not a good way, you can't do it. So, 
You, that would be a unique approach to understanding the universe, I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so before, before we get questions from you, a final concluding So uh, it, it, was, it was just, um, I, I was just being struck that part of our discussion here um, is an overlap between what we've all been saying, even though we've been squabbling a little bit about physics. But this, this issue of interpretation and this issue of the question that we ask to define it is so important because we can't usefully talk about something unless we agree on a definition. And we, we've, we've picked definitions to suit us, probably. Well, I have. I admit that now. You two have been more, much more honest about the whole thing. And I think, in summing up, this is too big for just one hour. <laughs> <laughs>